So the way I started last week as a way I'll re- start my recap, I mentioned that the Bible references that the Lord tests his people. The Lord tests his people. This is a theme throughout scripture. A good example of that would be Deuteronomy 8.2, where it says, You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, and here's the key phrase, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Job 23 verse 10 says this, but he knows, that is God knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. God is in the business of trying and testing. And I referenced 1 Corinthians 10, which talks about no man being tested beyond that which he can bear. The word is parazon, which has to do with a test or a trial. And of course, in that passage in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a way of escape mentioned, an ekbasis, picturing the, the exodon, the exodus of Moses out of his testing, where the Israelites were being pursued by the Egyptian armies, and there's a Red Sea moment in front of them, and there's apparently no way through. Give me a wave if you've experienced no way through. And there's a lot of smiles coming. It's, like it's, it's almost as if God designs it that way. The Red Sea moments come to all believers. In the story we read with Elisha, Elijah, crossing over point, there is a no way through point. God has to make a way where there seems to be no way. I I remember when I was um, second year at university, I was in second or third day of fasting and prayer. I think it was second day, actually. I'm not very good at fasting beyond two days. And um, in fact, I'm very weak at fasting and prayer, but I try my best because Jesus sees it as a normal discipleship practice. He says, when you fast, in the same ways he says when you pray Uh, so it's commonplace in the Christian journey so it's a breakthrough thing and I was fasting and praying and I was down on my knees and at that time I think I was about 19 years old I didn't know the scriptures as well as I do now I hope in 20 25 30 years time I know it a lot better than I do today but at that stage I've really not got into it deeply and what I was seeing in a vision in the middle of fasting and prayer was directly from the scriptures I was taken into a vision, I've rarely had this, maybe two or three times before, where I was actually inside the vision, I just didn't just see a mind picture, I was in a valley, and all around me was the sounds, and at the time I was on my knees by my bedside, but I was in a large valley whilst I was knelt on my knees, I got taken into this experience, and then I heard a rumbling, and I looked up to the horizon, and a mountain split open, and a river raced down, I heard the thundering and the rumble, and it came and rushed past in front of me. I heard the voice of the Lord from this side say, where there is no way, I make a way. And when I was in difficult times in the past, the Lord through prophetic people has come to me. They don't know me. They've never walked with me before. They will often quote that verse to me. The Lord, I don't know why the Lord's telling me this to you, but Steve, the Lord says, where there's no way, I make a way. It's become a life verse for me and probably should be a life verse for all believers because God is the God of the breakthrough, isn't he? Got it? Do you believe that? Amen. He's a way maker. Where there is no way, he says, I make a way. It's not Stephen Carryism, that's a Bible truth. He's a God who likes to be glorified. Where there is no way, he makes a way. He told me that when I was a 19-year-old man who'd never never read that really thoroughly. God said, This is the truth, and I want you to know it for your life. Be encouraged by that today, church. I think often we can look at our own landscape of life and think there is no way, but God is the God of the breakthrough, is a way maker. 
And this is what happened to the Israelites in the desert. They were being tested to see what was in their heart. How would they respond when put under pressure? What would they do? Proverbs 17.3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. You, you will have experienced this, whether you're aware of it or not as a believer. The Lord often allows his children to go through things that test the heart, to show them what's in the heart, to bring it to the surface so it might be dealt with. There's all, by the way, there's always a test before we're trusted. There's always a test before we're trusted. Testing is a dual pathway. It's both a pathway to destruction and a pathway to promotion. Elisha was promoted because he stayed the course. Let's read about that in 2 Kings 2 again. If you've got your Bibles, you can either switch them on or turn to them or just remember them as you've obviously, <laughs> like me, memorized lots of things. 2 Kings 2, 1 to 15 says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, <clears throat> Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. <clears throat> Verse 3, the company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and said, do you not know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as I live, and the Lord lives, and you live, I will not leave you. So they went on to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. Do you see how he's being tested? His stickability. Stay here. Even leaders test followers. And he replied, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left. And the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they'd all crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken from you. This is a key verse for the second section later on. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it'll be yours. Otherwise, it will be not. Verse 11, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and of horses, a fire appeared and separated the two of them. An angel and, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garments and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the God of Elijah? Yeah, some of you are going to have to pray that in this season. Where are you, Lord, in this? It's okay to pray that prayer. <coughs> Manifest. When, the, when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The Spirit 
of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And if I was Anglican, I might say, Lord, bless the reading of your word or something along those lines. We don't take the, the Bible in quite the hallowed way. It should be sometimes. It's God's holy word, isn't it? Precious, precious book. The Lord is raising up many in this season in the hidden places of their testing. I really believe that. I really believe that this is the shaking of the tree that is going to form the heroes of tomorrow. Things are being shaken like never before. There are many who have been having to stay very close to Jesus to cope with the challenging journey they're on in this room. Much demonic opposition is screaming to those people today, give up, turn back and forget following. Many saints are having to journey through their own Gilgal, Bethel and Jericho moments before they cross over. Is this, let me ask you a question. Do you remember those place names from last week? Give me a wave if you remember them. I know you've read it before, lots of you. Let me go through them again, briefly. Gilgal speaks of many things, but the main portion of scripture is from Joshua 5, where they circumcise a new generation coming through. So Gilgal's a place where the flesh is cut off. It's a place where consecration to God is established. It's a place where God dependence and God devotion is realized. In your journey, excuse me, in your journey, I have done two COVID tests this week. They were both blazingly negative. So (laughs) I'm fine. I may have a tickle, but I'm fine. (laughs) So the back row, the front row, moving back three three rows there. Let me just ask you this question. I want you to imagine the sorts of tests that would need to take place in a middle-class setting like this to help us realise God's dependence. Imagine that. Because we're quite self-sufficient, aren't we? we? We have what we need. We're not in an Eastern setting or African nation where we're saying, give us this day our daily bread and we really mean it. We, we're quite educated, generally. We're quite self-sufficient. We don't really need the Lord for a lot of our life. And that independent spirit that can come upon us can move us away from intimacy, which is the normal default of any Christian, according to God's pattern of living. So what God does, not in an unmerciful way, not in an unkind way, is he allows us to experience things that bring us back to a place where we have to throw ourselves on God. He allows allows us to go through stuff where unless we lean on the Lord... We wouldn't survive that Gilgal season. It's a bit like that scripture I quoted from Song of Solomon, leaning on her beloved. She emerges from the wilderness. Who is this coming, leaning on her beloved from the wilderness? That's what God was doing at Gilgal. He was making us God-dependent. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you're at your Gilgal. Can I say this? If you're at Gilgal, stay close to the Lord. Lean on your beloved. Don't stop following Jesus. Don't throw yourself on box sets and biscuits. Throw yourself on Jesus. Don't move away from intimacy. A crossing over is guaranteed for those who stay the course. A crossing over, listen to this, a crossing over into power and authority. And here's the point of the whole teaching series, these two. God is seeking to put his children into a place of power 
and authority, they link to character and power in another way of describing it. Authority links to our understanding of ourselves and our ability to wield power. You see, Matthew 7 is clear. There are many believers who have power, Matthew 7, 21, I think it is, who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name, do many signs and wonders in your name? And the Lord will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Is that in the Bible? That's a very challenging scripture. I'm not prepared to say that I understand it fully. But I know that the Lord doesn't value power over intimacy, but he expects those who are intimate to be powerful. Because intimacy should cultivate power. It's intimacy first, power second. Lots of powerful believers have no intimacy. This is why Jesus said in that passage in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. He adds to that, what do you mean by intimate knowledge? You who practice lawlessness. In other words, you who do not obey the will of his father, which has to be brought in intimacy. Intimacy is found where we hear the voice of the father, the nudge of the spirit, and we move with that nudging. So the Bible in Romans 8 says the children of God are not those who are powerful, even though that should be part of it, but those who are led by the Spirit of God. But what I want to postulate here is that every believer, every child of God should walk in power. You'll see that again at the end. Jesus said that in his word. He actually said, don't get on with anything to do with Christian life and witness without power. You know, you know I'm telling you the truth with this, don't you? You, you who know the scriptures. So power is important, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is intimacy with the Lord and obedience that flows from that. But God is causing us to cross over into power and authority so we might look just like the Lord Jesus. Can I say to you that what you're going through is father-filtered? The Bible says in Romans 8, and we know, we know, that all things... Work together for good, actually says for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. So everything in your life, the good, the bad and the ugly, God and his love for you is working it together for your best. Do you hear and receive that? Amen. I'm so glad you two are on the front row, praise the Lord. Model disciples. (laughs) They're in Canada, I sent them a message. I love you two, I really mean it. Wonderful couple. For the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here we go, verse 29, for. It's a conjunction in language. It's it's like a link on a train. It's like the word because, or it connects 28 in chapter 8 of Romans. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. God's doing everything for your best. For all that stuff is to make you like this. You are being conformed to the image of God's son. You've read that, haven't you? The game plan of God is to make you like Jesus, whoever you are, male or female. God is making you into the image of Jesus. To look more like Jesus, we have to grow in character and power. Many of our growth seasons are painful, but these uncomfortable seasons are often punctuated by God encounters, which demonstrates that we're not alone. And that's the Bethel side of the journey that we looked at last week. 
Not only do we endeavor to stay close to Jesus in challenging seasons, but like Jacob at Bethel, which was an uncomfortable place on his journey, God sometimes lets us know that in those uncomfortable places, I'm there too. Do you remember that, Stairway to Heaven? God was showing him the angels of God are ascending and descending because you had angels with you all the time, Jacob. Not just the ones coming down from heaven, but there were ones with you at the time in the desert when you thought you were alone. They had to ascend because they were with you already. Sometimes when we feel most alone, God is most, most with us. The Bible says that. He is near to those who are broken and contrite in spirit. It's a fact. It's a spiritual fact. God is near those who are broken and contract in spirit. It's the truth. And this is where Gilgal transitions to Bethel on the journey. Bethel is a place, well, Gilgal is a place that cuts off the flesh and takes away our selfish independence to make us dependent on God. But Bethel is a place where God shows us he's with us in the darkest times of our life and also creates encounters in those moments that redirect and establish our lives. But if that's Gilgal and Bethel, what about Jericho? Jericho, as I said last week, means sweet fragrance. Joshua 5 would be an example of this place. It's a place where, if we can parallel it with our own lives, where everything falls down around us like the walls of Jericho. And our own agenda, do you remember? Joshua's agenda. Are you on our side? Do you want to on their side and I've got a plan no 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 this is the plan walk around the city where God exposes plans of man to be weak and wants us to go into his agenda do it my way even if it's silly my way or the highway Joshua in the COVID season that happened a lot a lot of ministries a lot of situations collapsed we're still suffering from the benefit from the brokenness of COVID and the way that has impacted churches I really like the refreshing phrase that came from Gav Calver when he was here and he inadvertently rebuked anyone who wants to say what it was like before myself included and what it's like after he was essentially saying work with what's in front of you and it's the same for the people in the pulpit as it is in the pew we cannot go back he said Gav if you remember it we're like the older generation after the second world war moaning about the way it is now before the beverage report had been written and all squalor and brokenness had been dealt with in the 50s. You know, oh, I remember the good old days. That's not where Jesus is, the good old days. They've gone. We have to look forward to the sunrise. Even if we're in the shadowlands, the Lord is making a way where there seems to be no way. It's only when our world collapses that further dependence with God is cultivated. We ask questions like this, what now, Lord? Which way now, Lord? That's Jericho. See, I think Jericho speaks of the bigger tests, beyond the cutting off of independence at Gilgal, beyond the isolation and hopelessness of Bethel, laced with God encounters, to the complete destruction of Jericho, where all you've got left in your hand is a Rahab. If you read that in Joshua, why? why, why what? What? Rahab? That's... I saw... What? And then in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, we see Rahab, the mother of Boaz. 
in the line of Jesus. Because God is the master chess player and his ways, according to Isaiah 55, are not our ways, neither his thoughts are thoughts. He is never foxed, he is never flummoxed, he is never stressed, he is never weighed down, he is victorious always. Isn't that good news? And all we need to do is lean a little bit into the Lord, like the Gilgal, lean into the Lord and something of that victory rubs off on us. You feel it in worship. We have a different perspective from the Lord. And we're usually wrong. Because the Lord sees everything. I love that scripture in Joshua 5 where he said, are you on our side? Are you on their side? And the Lord says, I'm on neither. Why is that, Lord? Because I'm holy. I don't adjust to you. I don't fit in with you. You adapt to me. I'm God. And the more the church nestles into the Lord, the more the creases are ironed out, the more the peace of heaven comes because God's never stressed, the more the enlargement of heaven comes because fruitfulness is found in intimacy. That's in the creation that God has made which reflects his glory. And I think that God would take us through this place of Jericho to show us the ultimate form of consecration. Though he slay me, to quote Job, you find yourself postured under the Almighty. It's like... The Apostle Paul, because people who serve the Lord in a mighty way are the most tested. The Apostle Paul says, we we who are alive are always being given over, always being given over, always being given over to death for your sake, for Jesus' sake, should I say. We are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. We are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. That is the ultimate goal of the Christian disciple journey. Jesus said, take up your cross. So many of us take our life back and we wonder why God puts us on our back again and allows us to go through stuff. It's because he wants to live through us. He wants to come alive through us. He wants resurrection life to be real to us. That's why the Apostle Paul writes that I might gain and attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not the resurrection of the dead, which is the general judgment one day, but the resurrection from the dead, the life of Christ through him who's been slain a thousand times in life. Because life hit him on the chin again and again and again, and he decided to just lie down and let God. Most people who go on in Christ if not all people, go through Jericho experiences. You know some of the heroes that you have in your life and your journey. They're the most tested individuals you'll have met. More power, more anointing, greater character needed. So the Lord takes people through fire so the instrument is ready to carry the anointing. Power qualifies for ministry. Character keeps it. And character is only forged in fire. Are you hearing me, church? It's going in. I hope you can receive this. It's from the Lord. When we pass through the challenging Jericho seasons, we become deeper people, hopefully looking more like the Lord. 
This sweet fragrance of Jericho is where heaven invades earth and the eternal replaces the temporal in our thinking. People are promoted if they pass through this place on the journey and refuse to leave the Lord's side. On Elijah's farewell tour, there was all sorts of things trying to block them. There was the opposition of the school of the prophets. Do you know, anointing is always opposed. I mentioned this last week. Think of Joseph with his brothers. Think of Jesus. Think of David. Think of anyone in scripture that had a touch of God. I wonder if people like Joel Turton after the gifted conference in 2018 felt stuff rise up against him from the spirit realm. But I honor you, Joel, publicly because the spirit came upon you. And the spirit comes upon people for a purpose. It evidences God's choice. And it's not man's decision whether God chooses someone. It evidences whether the Lord has a purpose over their life. There's this sense of let's see how Elisha will do on his own when Elijah goes up. Come on, your master's going today. You can't carry this on surely in his slipstream. Yes, I know he's going. Get off my back. Community opposition for anointing. How many leaders like that carry an anointing and see opposition? Leaders that see the, make the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, demons cast out. Leaders looking just like Jesus face persecution as Jesus faced. They hated me, Jesus said. They'll hate you as well. Anointed people are the most opposed but God is cultivating through it all power and obedience in those people. You know, it's very easy to be a leader to have smooth tongue. It's a different thing to be a leader and carry anointing. The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. The Lord wants disciples, not groupies. And electioneering can be made from the pulpit. Look, this is what I want to say to gather a crowd. This is what I need to say to have a large church. If I just preach, you can be a millionaire. This happened. I think the church has got wise to it. Churches grew large in the 90s on certain doctrines that were just not healthy. The Lord says selfish ambition and vain conceit, electioneering, is what he's dealing with at this time. God is replacing that with anointing and anointed people. Jesus was rejected by his community, his family, most of society, politically and political and military power. And I said last week, maybe rejection is the norm for anointing. Still, rejection can lead to promotion. I read from Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it's marvelous in our eyes. You see, rejection is part of the test. Not a nice word, is it? Some of you are looking very miserable now. (laughs) Rejection is normal for anointed people even amongst the community of faith. Because it reinforces all sorts of insecurities and jealousies and criticism. But God is seeking to raise up anointed vessels in this season, those who can stay walking with Jesus. Do you know, one of the things the Lord's been saying to me over the last few months is, fix your eyes on me, Stephen. Do you remember that scripture, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God. Do you see the pathway to victory? It's through the cross, through the shame of rejection and the abuse that comes with anointing. Now, I've not given myself much time. Can we go to the next slide? 
but this is good. You see, character can carry anointing. And character is forged in that journey of Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And by the way, Jericho is cyclical. So you'll have seasons in your life where you go through everything collapse and things being raised. And every time you're constantly being forced into a dependence with God in different ways. But let me not put on you this idea that by your perseverance you gain anointing. I think it'd be very dangerous for you to read that passage in 2 Kings and presume if I just stay close enough to the Lord, if I just try hard enough, if I just cope with trials, then he'll give me an anointing. I don't want you to see that as being a truth. I want to say that it's not because of what we do that the power of God comes on us necessarily. It's what Christ has done in God. And the Holy Spirit is a grace gift, not earned. We'll understand this when I just go through this double portion section. Because gazing continually on the ascended Jesus is the juncture at which power comes on the life of the believer. Gazing on the ascended Jesus is the juncture at which power comes on the life of the believer. Do you notice that it didn't say anything about earning it in that phrase? If you want power from the Lord, it's a point of contact with the place of victory that he already has. Let me read that section in 1 Kings again. It says, when they'd crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and of horses, a fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the God of Elijah, he asked. When he'd struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. The company of the prophets of Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Key phrase in that reading is, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Now, I, I, I don't know about you, but I like ice cream. And I don't, I don't know about you, but when you have children or grandchildren or even children you're looking after that are not your own, and you go with them to get an ice cream and you've got all good intentions, I'm going to get the kids an ice cream. And then it, part way up the line, it becomes, well, I might just get a single with the kids as they have an ice cream. And then you get up to the window and it's like, I'm having a double. Uh, and by the time you're paying the guy, it's a double with all the sprinkles and a flake. And you come out and you know the look from your wife and your kids. Is enough conviction from the Lord to say, I need to be sanctified more in this area. So you're carrying this whopping great ice cream. Lewis and Ella, they love their ice cream. But quite often they've seen me and there's been this. You know, you, you would have thought that you'd have learned by now, but that this is an area that I'm still growing on. And learning from the Lord, I, I still need grace for biscuits, and I still need grace for ice cream. Sometimes I'm like Scooby-Doo. But is that what Elisha is asking for here? Is Elisha asking for double the power? Is Elisha asking for double the miracles? Is that what this passage is all about? Because a lot of Hebrew scholars, 
classic rabbinical tradition says he was going to do double what Elisha did, but that doesn't show up in the text. There are repeat miracles. Example would be the multiplication of oil and bread, revival of a woman's son. Both of them are in the stories, but we don't have evidence of double the miracles in Scripture. And is, is double the anointing something you can measure? I mean, I mean, is it something that you can numerically quantify and say, he had double what Elijah had? Can we see that anywhere in the Bible? I personally see within this passage the idea of a successor narrative, which is pictured with the backdrop behind that of Moses and Joshua, because the same word for spirit is used for Joshua and Moses. When Joshua received the anointing of Moses, it says that Joshua was an inspired Man, that's the word for spirit in the Hebrew. He was an inspired man. He had the spirit. He'd inspired the spirit that was on Moses when Moses laid his hands on him. And it's the same word here that there is a transfer of anointing from one to the other. But there's more to it than just being the spiritual successor of your mentor. This is not just about the baton passing spiritually. This is more than that. If you dig a bit deeper, something's going on here that is quite remarkable and pictures your life journey with Jesus and how you can come into power and anointing through the same pattern revealed in Scripture, revealed in the pattern of Moses and Joshua, revealed in the pattern of Elisha and Elijah. And by the way, I feel the anointing now because God wants to do something in people's lives today with this. The meaning of Elisha's final request seems to lie not in the numbers, not in the quantifiable growth of anointing, but in the identity and function of Elisha as a double. As a double, a mimic of Elijah. Can we have slide two? Now, I love seeing doppelgangers. This kid, his mum couldn't resist when they went to the supermarket. These two turned up at the first day at college in the dorms together in America and found a doppelganger had been assigned to the same room. That'd freak you out, wouldn't it? Orlando Bloom, there's loads of Victorian celebrity doppelgangers. That's quite hilarious. The Nicolas Cage one is particularly funny. But this is the one that I love the most, the one in the corner where they're just on a flight together. They get on the plane, they sat next to one another, and they suddenly look to the right and to the left, and the guy next to them is them. It's like looking in a mirror, and you can see the hilarity on their bearded faces as they realize we are just brothers from another mother. And even the entertainment of the guys watching the selfie behind makes me laugh. Doppelgangers. Doppelgangers are the mysterious exact double of a living person. This is linking to what's going on in the Elisha-Elijah narrative. It's a German word, doppelganger. That literally translates double walker. Double walker. Or double goer is another way of saying it. A doppelganger isn't someone who just resembles you, but is an exact double right down to the way you walk, act, talk, and dress. Elisha was to become the doppelganger of his master. A master who did not die. A master who ascended. And a master who poured out his power upon his follower. Does that resemble anyone today? Can we have the next slide? When Elijah tested his student for the last time, 
what he wanted to recreate in him, such was his anointing, is was a duplication process that in seeing him, which is actually the vocation of a seer or a prophet, in seeing the heavenlies, something happened between the two of them. There was a transfer of power that the succession that was on his plan actually came to pass and the baton was passed. And the mirror came up between the two of them. And Elijah, though he did not die, was still living through Elisha and his ministry. It wasn't so much that Elisha had a distinct ministry from Elijah, though that would be true to argue to a point. It was that Elijah's ministry carried on through his follower. With Elijah in heaven, Elijah was the, Elisha was the mirrored twin. This doubling theme came from the gazing of a twin into a mirror at the point of the transfer of the anointing. He received a double of Elijah's spirit because Elijah had be, Elisha had become his duplicate. With Elijah in heaven, Elisha remains both the only survivor, so only surviving copy of Elijah. He embodies, in essence, Elijah doubled. Now let's transfer this to you. God wants to double Jesus for each one of you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect like a mirror. The Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As I've said, God wants us to be like Jesus in character and power, and trials produce this effect. But gazing upon the ascended Jesus, remember this, please, if you don't remember everything, gazing upon the ascended Jesus releases the power on your life. Why? Because to see him ascended is to see him in his place of victory. To see him ascended takes your eyes off yourself in your place of apparent defeat. To see Jesus is to see the heavenly reality that is immovable, that the kingdom of God has come and all powers, demons, people, earthly powers, are subject to the authority of Christ who is Lord of all. When we start to gaze upon that, the agenda that's in heaven starts to flow down to us on earth because you do become like what you behold. Your vision affects your provision. If you spend ages gazing at MTV or particular types of films or whatever you're into, other than the Lord, we eventually start to live out, speak out, become like what we're looking at, what we're listening to. And so gazing upon God is the surest way for power to come on the life of the believer. Jesus said, It was at that juncture that power was released. In John 14, it says, you'll do greater works than me. How, Jesus? He said, because I go to the Father. It was at that point that power was released. It also says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses. Luke 24 says, behold, I'm sending you promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This is not for leaders. This is a general push from the Lord for all Christians to wait till you become powerful in God. To seek his presence, not earn his presence, seek his presence, your face, Lord, I will seek. See, it's fundamental to the mission of the church that the church receives the reception 
of power for mission. You know, the Apostle Paul describes some arrogant people in the Corinthian churches who had rejected his apostolic authority and were not listening to his teaching. And he said to them, some of you become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but here's the key, what power they have. Do you see that? The Apostle Paul's measuring stick for whether somebody is anointed to teach, whether somebody's anointed to lead, whether somebody's a true disciple, the Apostle Paul's measuring stick is, do they have power? That's in 1 Corinthians 4, by the way, if you didn't know. Power is essential to being a disciple of Jesus. It's not to show off with. It's not to become Jedis for Jesus, but it is a fundamental part of your Christian journey alongside character. For the, the Bible says in the verse after that, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. As the Apostle Paul's position on power. I'm going to finish with that. I've got other things that I could say, but let me repeat that phrase. Power qualifies for ministry, but character keeps it. Power and character come through the journey through trials where we persevere close to the Lord and power is released by gazing upon the ascended Jesus. The test of seeing the ascended Jesus was replicated in the life here of Elijah and Elisha. It's the same image. And because he'd seen once, he'd seen the chariots of Israel and horses, you get to 2 Kings 6 and that gift in that anointing is still on him to see the chariots of Israel. And their horsemen. That's a picture of the resources of heaven, by the way. And I think there's people in this room, as I bring this to a close, who are, they have their eyes closed to the resources of heaven that hang over their life. I believe there's people in this room who feel genuinely alone, genuinely broken, genuinely resourceless in the spirit. And I want to say to you, one of your prayers today or this week needs to be, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Let me see. Let me perceive spiritually again, Lord. Give me vision. Because in seeing the invisible, that which is in the heavenly realms, Jesus, the victorious saver, comes into our present journey as a Christian. And seeing the ascended Lord high and lifted up, it's what Stephen saw, wasn't it, when he was stoned? He sees the Lord. Seeing the Lord on his throne stills the storm. We, we have the wrong perspective often as believers on our life. Often we only see with carnal eyes. But we need to ask the Lord to give us a heavenly vision. And in seeing Jesus, in that moment, power can be transferred because the gift of the Holy Spirit is not earned, it's given. It's given by faith, by grace through faith. Anything that's rich from the Lord is not earned. We cannot earn it. What we must earn is character through perseverance. Character through the journey, through all those place names, through opposition against us. Power through gazing upon God and enjoying that presence as we lean into him. Amen.